Listener Production. This week I chatted with Charlie Bazina. Now, I say this with a lot of sincerity. Charlie is a legend of the Victorian police. This is a 38-year veteran of the force, 17 of which were spent as a homicide detective. Charlie was a detective and senior officer during arguably the most tumultuous time in Victorian policing, during the Melbourne gangland wars, which took place between 1998 and 2010. It was a violent time. The wars threw Melbourne into chaos. And Charlie, who was at the centre of it all, was trying to bring back control to the city. You don't give families closure in any offence, you give them answers. Why was my daughter raped? Why would this happen? Why did my son get murdered or wife get murdered? And you give them answers, there's a reason for it. You never have closure in the significant offences of murder that we investigate. And the relationships you then build up also with the victims of crime and even the offenders. Charlie begrudgingly resigned in 2009, as you'll hear him mention. But since then, he's been ever-present in the public eye, providing insight into the world of crime in Melbourne and around Victoria. Today, we're unpacking a bit more than just the interview side of Charlie. I want to understand the process and go behind these stories. With all that said then, here's my conversation with Charlie. 38 years in the job, mate. Goodness me, 17 years homicide detective, retired 2009. When did you join? You must have joined, what, 70 something? Yeah, 71 as a, was a, as a police cadet, and then a police cadet for about 18 months, and then uh, graduated in 1973. Just peeling the onion on that one layer, Charlie, what was your, as a young bloke, what was your motivation to um, to, to, to join the police, to, to take that step? Well, I suppose, you know, um, I come from a very sheltered family, a Maltese background, sheltered in regards, oh, you're going to get hurt and that type of stuff, but I was so motivated. And that started as basically a 15-year-old, I can throw my memory back. Because I'd watched a lot of these cop shows, in, in, in Victorian days it was Homicide, um, Division 4, locally made, Hector Crawford, um, local made police. And that's what attracted me of saying, well, I, I love the variety. And I didn't start off with saying, you know what, as a 15 17-year-old, I'm going to be a homicide detective. Things just mm. progressed as they as they come across. And so, you know, I want to be a police officer. And based on what I saw, I love the variety. I didn't want to be stuck in a factory or doing things like that. Hadn't I been a police officer, I probably would have been a cabinet maker or something or right. a builder of yeah. sorts. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was my drive. And then I applied initially. I was um, in uh, Form 4 at that stage. And you could go in younger as a, as a police cadet. And I missed out. I got uh, knocked back on. I failed my eyesight test. Okay. And things had changed so dramatically today. You can go in with glasses and yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I went back and did my leaving a certificate um, and applied again. Uh, again, so driven by it. And uh, I just, uh, and I went against the wishes of my, my family and said, no, no, it's too dangerous a job, as a lot of people would get. But I said, no, I was um, that driven by saying, that's what I want to do. I love having a yarn to old school coppers like yourself, Tony, mm. because they've, you know, they've got those great stories to tell. And, and, and you're a young detective, 1993. Let's, um, just interested in your insight on a, a very high profile case you worked on, the Frankston serial killer, mm. Paul Denyer. Um, you know, serial, serial killers, thankfully, um, here in Australia, very rare. It's a very rare entity. Yep. Of course, when it happens, it invokes all that fear in society. Um, you know, they're those classic crimes which, are rare by nature, and what it does, 
I think, Charlie, is it, it, it brings to sort of people's doorstep all that stuff that they see on TV and in the movies and, and mm. all the rest of it. You know, you'd have been a young detective on that case. And, and I think, Charlie, you'd know better than most. It's those early crime cases that leave a bit of a mark on you, particularly particularly serial homicides. And um, these were these were brutally violent homicides, the murders of three, three young women you know, aged 18, 22, 17. And I, there's a quote that I found from you, Charlie, um, where you said that um, Denya, who's the offender, Denya's confession is one of the most chilling things I've ever witnessed. Can you just talk us through that for a moment? Well, look, to, to start off, you don't know you are investigating a serial killer when you get the first one. Now, I was given the task to investigate Elizabeth Stevens. She was the first one. Elizabeth Stevens was late in the evening. He sees her hop off on a bus and just went, what happened? Oh, I had the urge. The urge was coming up. So I said, he goes, that one. Got her. And then same with Debbie uh, for him. I got the urge. And then our first breakthrough was what he did was drive Debbie Freem's car back from the murder scene back into the CBD of Frankston. That's when we knew that this guy, um, we knew he was a big guy because the seat was pulled back. There was blood staining in there, had no fingerprints, no DNA. And uh, we then, again, as you know, gut feeling with coppers and the things you learn through investigations, this person must live within walking distance of where Debbie Frame's car was parked because we know these people are lazy. So we then had to be more proactive. So we were then targeting to door knock probably one or two square kilometres and account for every, I suppose, teenager upwards in every house because we knew he lived in that particular. That was the, the gut feeling we had. Now, that would have taken us, and you can imagine and you'd know the uh, the resources that that would take mm. to be mm. able to do that. And that may have taken us 18 months, two years to account yeah. for every person. Yeah, yeah. So we were setting that up um on a particular Saturday uh, after we were getting with Debbie Freem. So we were running parallel investigations with two teams, my team with the Elizabeth, another team with Debbie Freem. And then we get a missing persons report. And again, we didn't marry that up. A missing persons report of Natalie Russell, 70-year-old girl, didn't arrive home from school. And we didn't marry that up to us because you get that many missing persons reports. Yeah, yeah. So she's reported missing. And then that evening, her body is found uh, under some uh, trees off this particular track and off the golf courses. So my boss said, well, Charlie, look, I'm going to um, swing you off leading that investigation to put lead the Natalie Russell investigation. Mm. And Frankston was pretty much shut down. We had community meetings at that stage. The Premier, Jeff Kennett, had to come down and address the public masses and reassure them that uh, we were doing And the pressure on us was so phenomenal. Huge, mate. And uh, and we knew they were all related because all the all the assaults on the women were all basically identical. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, with similar fact evidence and the likes. And um, that particular Saturday is when we find Natalie's body, and that was the or the Friday night. And we were about to put about two or three hundred detectives door knocking and do mm. it that way. So we we find Natalie's body. But here we have. That this one, he set up the crime scene or, or his actual uh, trap for the person. He's sitting in his car, so he's Natalie going across the road. He darts into the first hole in the wire fence under the tree. She walks past that one. He comes out behind her, 
closes the gap until she comes level with the second hole that is cut in the fence, grabs her, pulls her in and uh, kills her. That afternoon, unbeknownst to us, a uh, lady from the Postal Service um, happened to see a car parked there with a guy behind a steering wheel crouching down. But because the community were on such high alert, she rang the police. Two young constables came down. As they're checking his motor car, he's killing Natalie. So the next morning, the balloon goes up. We then uh, get these two constables said, oh, hey, we checked the car just there. One thing led to another. We find out who it was. Uh, Paul Charles Denyer lived at this address. Lo and behold, he's in our catchment of the door knock we were going to do. Tick that yep. box. No prior convictions. Motive? I had the urge to kill. It was a thrill kill. He... Had that lady not made that phone call, he would have continued to kill. So just on that too, Chan, this is interesting. There was no sexual element to those homicides because mm. that's quite unusual, isn't it? I mean, uh, you you would know better than most that oftentimes when we're dealing with serial killers, and as rare as they are here, we often rely on studies from overseas, serial killers are often a, um, have evolved from being serial sex offenders. It's that line of continuum, if you will, and, and oftentimes it's it's that they go from committing sexual crimes to mm. to committing sexual crimes and then taking the lives of their victims. That confession that he made, uh, Charlie, you know, which I refer to, you said was a pretty chilling experience for mm. you as a as a relatively young detective. I guess I, I think again from memory, he was um, he just sort of sat there sucking on a bloody on a durry on a cigarette and, yep. and just going through, you know, like you and I would be talking about the footy on the weekend. I mean, nonchalant. And you speak, you know, in a case like this, uh, a serial killer case, as, as rare as they are, when they're happening, they're very real um, for people in that community. And, and you mentioned, um, you know, the, the 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 intense pressure on on investigating detectives, where w- one homicide becomes two, which becomes three, and now of course the front page of every paper, every every radio, every TV news station, you know there is a serial killer on the loose in Frankston, and it's um you're working under that pressure, you're working under pressure coming left, right, and forward, and having to try and quell some of that fear in the community, which you and I know really is only going to be quelled once that bloke's locked up, and all eyes are on you. We were putting in 14, 15-hour days, and uh, apart from physically exhausted, we were mentally exhausted, but there's no point looking behind us. We were it. Charlie, let's fast forward a little from, from uh, 93 to 98. Uh, you know, more experienced detective now and, um, you know, a few more lock-ups under your belt. Um, very high-profile case, uh, Alphonse Gangatano, head of the Carlton crew down there. Mm. Now, this is an unsolved uh, homicide, I think. Am I right in saying to this day? Well, it's only unsolved because I couldn't get a conviction. I know who the offenders are, were, because they, they, they've all uh, been executed under our Wonderwall murders. Yes, um, yes. I think Jason Moran was the, the lead suspect in your yep, view. Jason Moran, along with uh, another um, ex-painter and docker safebreaker, uh, Graham the Munster Kinneborough. People sort of marked that down as one of the, the start of the Underworld murders that, that uh, killed some 30-plus uh, Underworld figures. Now, just on, just for the listeners, perhaps outside of Victoria, that may not be as au fait with that, we're talking there 98, that this was almost a trigger uh, for these underground, this gangland war, if you will, call it what you will, which ran through till about 2010. You saw, you're sort of talking 12 years here. Yeah. Whilst we know the motive why Gangitano was killed, he was on bail at the time with Jason Moran, an underworld figure, drug dealer. 
Gantatana was a standalone. Um, he lived in a uh, suburb of called Temple Stowe with his um, de facto and uh, two, yeah, two yeah. Uh, daughters at the time. Uh, we say that um, Kinnebar was in the house at the time. He denied that. He said, I was down at the 7-Eleven store. The de facto was uh, visiting her sister uh, in St Kilda with the two daughters. And then he's uh, shot a number of times, running to his laundry. He's in his underwear, no forced entry. Uh, we had an eyewitness that actually identified Jason Moran as walking down the driveway. We ended up getting uh, the driver that actually drove Jason Moran, who contacted us and said, oh, Jason Moran spoke to me, asked me to drive him to a location. He was another drug dealer, again, building up his credibility. Um, and we could do that by the circumstances. We know that he dumped the pistol uh, over the Westgate Bridge into the Maribyrnong River, or the Yarra River there. Uh, put divers in, never found the firearm. Um, we got one statement from the driver to say they drove Jason Moran to that location. Um, a week or so after that, he committed suicide, hung himself outside St. Pat's Cathedral. So that loses that. And as you know, because the state, his statement hadn't been tested, it's not worth the paper it's written on. So we'd never found the pistol. We had divers in for about 90 hours under the bridge. Um, they grid-padded and um, just couldn't find it. It was the main shipping channel. And they can only search by feel because all the silt, you just couldn't see your hand in front of you. We go on the investigation and, and the interactions you then have. And, uh, you know, um, we had an eyewitness who identified Jason. He was a young 21-year-old, clean skin, basically. When he learned he was a witness in an underworld murder, unfortunately, his, his evidence started to wane a bit because whilst these offenders have got the right to refuse a lineup or identification parade, which he did, we then put a photo folder together, which this witness says, that's the guy I saw, which was Jason Moran. He then learnt he's involved in a uh, underworld murder as a witness. Suddenly, that confident identification becomes, well, I'm not too sure, look, it could be, and you're thinking about being able to get a conviction. Well, and and he's, your, he's your key witness. He's a key witness. All yeah, one he I've falls got. over, mate, the whole thing's gone. Correct, yeah. correct. So long story short, we then don't have enough to charge anybody. Mm. So we then go to inquest. And as you know, in inquests or coronial hearings, there are no rules of evidence. Mm. At a coronial inquest, you can state opinions, hearsay, all, all things go. So we led the inquiry, the coronial investigation, and the coroner came back and said, Jason Moran, Graham Kinneborough are implicit in the murder of Alphonse Gantitano. But because we don't get a conviction, technically speaking, that case remains unsolved. Jason Moran becomes a victim of the underworld murders. Mm. That case will never be solved because our offenders are gone. Um, and, you know, begrudgingly that stays as unsolved. But I know who did it. I just it couldn't reach that high bar. These are massively resourced investigations, uh, Charlie, into homicides which obviously have to be, regardless of, of, of who the victim is, you know, um, these are homicides of underworld, uh, you know, gangland identities where clearly they've been killed by other gangland identities. And so you've got these massive resources. And um, just just a question on that, Charlie, how, how does that feel as a detective to be so immersed in, in repeatedly having to investigate these homicides, which as awful and terrible as they are, of course they are, and these folks have got families and everything else. 
But, you know, you compare that to the investigation of the, the Frankston serial killer where these mm. totally innocent people have their lives taken in, in horrendous circumstances. They've never stepped out of line. They've never done a bad thing in their lives. Now, all of a sudden, you're in, you're immersed in these homicides involving people who sort of live by the sword, die by the sword. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's kill or be killed. Well, how does that change your approach? You've still got the same drive, as you said quite rightly. Life's a life, um, and regardless of who they may well be within our community, um, and you're driven to it because realistically, it's it's there amongst the community, and it's the community safety at large that you're trying to prevent uh, or or, pre- or or protect. Um, so basically, that's the drive you've got, and and so that becomes just on that. That's an interesting point. That almost becomes your motivation for for, for a copper to say, well. Um, you know, if this keeps going at the rate that it's going, we're getting assassinations on the street at five o'clock in the afternoon where school kids could be going past. But do you sort of grab hold of that almost as your motivation? It's above and beyond who's involved in these things. Is that, is that, is that? Well, very much so. And, and nothing can be highlighted that people might know or the, the ones that, uh, not in Victoria wouldn't know, but a, a very pertinent factor that was is when Jason Moran, um, with a fellow called Barbara over at the a footy clinic with the young kids at Pascoe Vale, probably 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, the offender come up to the van they were sitting in. There were children sitting in the back seat of, of Moran and the other ones at a footy clinic. The offender shot dead both Moran and Barbara in the front seat, blood splatter everywhere in front of the children. He then pulled out a second firearm and fired that into the into the bodies, um, and then he uh, he then left. So that's ten o'clock in the morning, and that's a that's a significant issue which really sent shadow waves right through, and um, th- that highlights it. So you know it's up us to stop the killing, um, and okay, you've got a deceased person, and if you can charge people down the track, but as you know, the resource intense is what we allege we've got to prove. And ultimately, there was a code of silence, as there is in, in the underworld. And it's, it's when you get these people in a situation, as, as the task force did, that they could put a bit of pressure on a particular assassin um, and uh, they could get a discount in the murders that they'd uh, allegedly committed or were convicted of committing. Um, and as you know, we police jump the witness box in, in, in camera or, or give a letter of comfort to the judge to say this person's been of assistance. Without this person's assistance, we wouldn't have been able to solve things. And there's some discretion given to the sentencing judge about sentences. So eventually these people want to get out of jail um, and on it went from there. So you are really driven in relation to it. You put aside um, the, the history of these people, life, you know, um, we can't have this anarchy, this killing, uh, wanting killing in the st- streets of Victoria. High pressure. Politically, it was high pressure. Victoria Police was under a lot of pressure and uh, everything was thrown at it. Just one final question on this. And, and you did touch on this um, in, in your chat earlier, Charlie, that there was that moment that you found yourself with a colleague in the lounge room of Jason Moran's house. His old man came in, other other associates come in and, and you know, there's that sort of sudden realisation that here we are in essence, surrounded by these gang-dang fellas. We're the only ones that probably aren't, aren't, aren't carrying any sort of uh, firearms. Did you ever yourself, when you're, when you're working in that environment and it's such a volatile environment during that time, did you ever feel it at any way targeted yourself, uh, Charlie, or at any sort of danger? I know you said earlier that there's that honour amongst thieves type of thing, but this is sort of next level, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Look, and I think 
not personally, the only time that you really felt as an investigator or, or a police per se in any threat. I was uh, had worked in the drug squad working undercover, so you become very cognizant of the fact that um, you identify yourself to the drug dealers you've, you've been buying heroin off from, for example. So that was a concern that you'd be driving home doing anti-surveillance and that type of stuff. You wouldn't drive straight home from Russell Street and that type of thing. Then the only other time that was a great concern to us, as I mentioned earlier, was the Russell Street bombing. Here we had, at that stage, an unknown offender specifically targeting police headquarters with a car bomb. So we were all on high alert because we didn't know who they were, who's going to be targeted. And going back another step from from um, that is we then had the absolute ambush and slaughter of two young police officers, Tyne and Air, in Wall Street, South Yarra, where the similar crime group lay in wait behind. They, they put a, a, a decoy-style car in the street. Two young constables from Paran come along, typically nonchalantly looking at, oh, it's a stolen car being dumped. You're not on alert whilst they're checking the vehicle. These offenders, three or four offenders hiding behind the fence, jumped out, absolutely um, assassinated them, shot them dead. So that really changed the whole horizon about the respect and uh, of, of honour amongst thieves as such. Here we had a group of criminals who we knew that would wantonly just set up police, but they wouldn't set up the armed robbery squad, who were the ones that had been involved in a, an earlier killing of one of their cohorts. Right. They would target young, innocent yeah. Yeah. Uh, police officers. That gauges the, the type of people you're dealing with. Subsequently, they were charged with the murder. Then they were all acquitted, and it goes on and on. So mm. the whole fabric of... Um, police investigations and crime world has changed so dramatically and yeah. I think for the worst. Charlie, final case that I, I just interested in your take on we fast forward here through to uh from um from you know 98 up to 2004 this is the david hooks mm. david hooks australian cricketer a name that you know any anyone listening in here sort of i go I, I don't know sort of certainly over their 50s over their 40s possibly you know david hooks is a well-known entity um or, or, or individual now the young bouncer involved uh, dravko misovich was charged with um manslaughter plus some assault offenses he was found not guilty of all charges laid against him. This is at the Beaconsfield Hotel there at St Kilda. And again, um, it's perhaps a, um, a foundation to, to take your views on this. Y you were quoted as saying, and, and please pull me up if I've got this wrong, Charlie, one of the most shattering cases of your career. Very much. The failed prosecution left emotional scars that took some time to heal. One of the most disappointing verdicts of my career. So this is you know, they're strong words, Charlie, from a bloke with your experience. Yeah, very much so. Look, <laughs> And I'll keep saying is we as investigators have to work by the rules. Crooks don't. And you don't know, unlike America, where you can interview jury people, here it's a criminal offence. You cannot identify a jury person. You cannot speak to a jury person. So what, what happens in that jury room, no one knows apart from the 12 in that jury room. So Zravko's defence was, this guy grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, pulled me down, 
punched me into the abdomen, and I punched him back in self-defense. So this is David Hooks he's talking about. He's yeah. claiming that Hooks grabbed him and, he, and Correct. he responded. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's Ravko's defense. Self-defense is a complete defense to murder, manslaughter, assaults. So he's hit him once. Now, basically, Hooksy is knocked unconscious standing up because it hit him square on the chin. And from a standing position, he then falls, bang, and smashes his head on the bitumen road. He's basically dead at that stage in the brain bleed. It's not the punch that that causes the, the fatality. It's the contact on the ground because when you go down, forward or backwards, you're unconscious. You don't, you don't break the fall with your hands or anything like that. So it's not the punch that causes the fatality per se. It's the impact of the, the head hitting the ground usually, Correct. isn't it? Yeah. Correct. And we had the Alfred Hospital space 10 minutes away. It was, it was very close. This is what leads to my shatter, um, how I felt. So I'm telling the, the, um, the cricket fraternity, look, I'm confident we're going to get a conviction. Yeah, for manslaughter. Exactly. Yeah. But this is the situation was no one expects to kill anyone with one punch. Yeah. Yeah. And bit of history. So I had to prove it's not a murder because murder, you've got to prove intent to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. No intent. So murder's off the off the books. So that evening, we charged Zravko with the assault because at that stage, mm-hmm. Hooksy's on life support. Yeah. You've got enough for an assault. So and yeah. to hold him in custody. And mm. Bar refused. Yeah. So I'm confident, given the fact there's no support from self-defence, dangerous act we can we can argue and let the jury decide. Mm. So we charge him with the manslaughter once uh, we take life support off. He gets bail. Uh, very remorseful. Zravkov, never been in trouble with the police before. Yeah. Um, and uh, these are the situations about you, young people go out, mm. walk away. Keep your hands in your pockets. You yeah, know. these heartbeat decisions make Correct. can change everything. Correct. And, and yeah. just and just on that too, Charlie, I, I I note that you are extremely supportive, obviously, of the Hooks family. There's absolutely no denying that. But on the flip side of that, and and folks will find this interesting, you were very supportive of this young bloke who threw the punch. Very supportive of his family Pretty as much. well. Even even aligning the fact that the outcome of the case was quite devastating for you, and you you stated that in very strong terms. It didn't stop you from from giving that empathy and support to the young bloke who who had had caused that that death. I think that's a really interesting point to make too, mate. And that goes across the board. Mm. We support in any investigation. We support victims' families. We also support the the offenders' families because it's like me coming to your place and yeah. saying, "Oh, I've just locked up your son for a murder." Well, you're entitled to the same support. It's when we're told, "Hey, piss off. We don't want to talk to you." Well, okay, but we reach out to two. Um, and then it's up to the court. So we charge um, um, Zravka with the manslaughter and common assault mm. for the two charges. The jury came back after a short deliberation with an acquittal on both. Right. So you've got to just cop the jury's decision. Yes. Um, and I sat down there with um, with Robin Hooks um, and uh, um, Hooksy's half-brother, uh, Terry Kranich from uh, Queensland, and... Uh, uh, then I had to deal with the cricket team, uh, tell them the bad news. And, uh, you know, at times people look at you as blame of saying, well, you know, you were confident we're going to get it. And, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they've got to realise it's no, from, it's no, from no shortcoming from the investigation. It's just the way the law is. 
as a result of this, you know, because folks listening to this now be going, but hang on, these one punch laws now that they carry like a 10 year imprisonment thing. Yeah, but these laws have been changed subsequent to these cases. Very much so. We had some cases in the King's Cross around around the same time with some one punch killings. Yeah, you and I used to call them king hits. King um, hit, that's right. They, they call them a coward punch Correct. now, which I think is probably a better label. Because Very much. Identify. And these are often for coming up behind, giving someone a smack and that type of thing. Also, too, um, because these often happen in licensed premises and th- those type of things, I know here in New South Wales, Charlie, that if um, if, if if you do that, if I walk up behind someone, um, you know, hit them, uh, fatality, if I've got blood or alcohol in my system at the time, it actually increases increases the maximum imprisonment term because I, th- I think this reflects society as sort of sick to the back teeth of often young blokes getting a belly full of drink, going around and doing and doing this type of gear. And, you know, these situations, goodness, mate, I, I'm going to circle right back around, Charlie, to, you know, you as a young copper walking through, doing the pub walkthroughs, mate, at closing time. And there's so many of the elements of your investigation of the Hooks case that draw back on those experiences, mm. your support to Hooks's family, your support to the young bloke, knowing that these are tragic situations. We, goodness, mate, I'll tell you, um, Charlie, uh, um, this is not something I have on my CV, but mate, I worked as a bouncer in the King's Cross between finishing in the police and starting my business lecturing, and I was up there for over a year. I was working Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights at the Coliseum nightclub in the middle of Darlinghurst Road, one of the most violent clubs mm. in the environment. And it never shut, mate. Forget 10 o'clock closing. This place was open. Never <laughs> shut. 24-7. <laughs> and, I, you know, I worked on the door up there. And in fact, I was brought in because the owner of the pub sort of knew me through a friend of a friend and wanted me to work with the doorman up there to try and reduce the amount of violent assaults that they were committing against patrons, you know. Um, and it was, those are the days, it was the Wild West up there, mate. You never saw any coppers coming mm. in. It was all, mm. it was all dealt with by the doorman and, Correct. you know, all these clubs were run by under, un, you know, underground mm. sort of in, individuals and, uh, um, and, you know, but, but on the flip side of that, mate, I've, I've been in pubs after a few beers after games of footy and been moved along by bouncers. And we know on both sides of that discussion, geez, mate, it's, you, you got two blokes, you got ego, you got all this sort of bloody carry on that blokes... You know, a couple of young blokes like in a ring type of thing and, and nobody wants to take a backward step and you throw one punch, mate. I, you know, goodness me, I've got a 22-year-old son and I said to him, mate, you just, these, these, this can change the course of your life, these heartbeat decisions, Charlie. And above and beyond all the laws and the right and the wrongs and everything, good young blokes can make a decision that in this case took someone's life and, and probably affected this young, this young dormant for the rest of his life. No winners there. I can't emphasise enough in your degree it's it's your friends, the ones around you. Pull them away. You know, you're the one that's looking at it from the outside in. You're not hyped up with adrenaline. You're not maybe as, as drunk as, as the perpetrator. For goodness sake, step in, pull your mate away, either on both sides, and just drag them away. You've got to take that step. It's like taking the keys off a drunk driver who's a mate. Get your friends. You're, you've got to step in and pull them away. And and that's where you might just save that heartache and save a life. Charlie, look, we could chat all day, mate. It's it's been such an absolute pleasure to to have you here and, and have a bit of a, a bit of a yarn. Um it's it's you know, to 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 have policed uh, for for the period of time that you did 30, 38, 39 years in and, and at a time too, I would say Charlie, that in Victoria particularly was was a, a, a very uh, turbulent time mm. in Victorian recent sort of history. Um, you know, you've been there, you've been at the coalface, um, 
it's an absolute credit, mate, your career, and um, uh, and I just want to wish you, you know, all the very best moving forward. And and I say, on behalf of uh, a lot of us, and with absolute sincerity, thank you so much for your service, Charlie. You're a you're a you're an absolute champion, and um, and I and I look forward to meeting with you again down the track. Thanks so much, been a pleasure. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly. <laughs>